Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Mahatma Gandhi and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. are two of my greatest heroes. Though there are situations in which I lack the imagination to envision a different recourse, I tend hard to pacifism, regarding violence and war as a poor means of settling disputes. And so it's a stretch for me to find common ground with those whose first choice is to take up arms rather than their last resort. I have tremendous respect, though, for veterans. And I'm inspired by those who have served out of a deep sense of conviction and with honor. On this Veterans Day Sunday, I want to share four veteran stories as a lens on the concept of honor, honor, which feels at once old-fashioned and, I'm convinced, is a sorely missing element of civil society. These words are from James Davison Hunter's The Death of Character. He writes, we say we want a renewal of character, but to have a renewal of character is to have a renewal of creedal order that constrains, limits, binds, obligates, and compels. The price is high. We want character, but without unyielding conviction. We want strong morality, but without the emotional burden of guilt or shame. We want virtue, but without particular moral justifications that invariably offend. We want good without having to name evil. We want moral community without any limitations to personal freedom. In short, we want what we cannot possibly have on the terms that we want it. I invite you to join me in hearing these words as a challenge. Today's first veteran story is from Frances Whitebird, now 80 years old. Frances is a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and a former commissioner of Indian Affairs in South Dakota. These are his words. I come from a warrior society. My great-grandfathers fought in the Battle of the Rosebud in 1876 and eight days later in the Battle of Little Bighorn. My uncle fought in the trenches during World War I. My father was a Lakota code talker and fought in World War II's Battle of the Bulge. I graduated from university in 1967. I had never flown on an airplane or been to another country, but I enlisted in the army, trained as a medic, and on March 20th, 1969, landed in Vietnam. When someone gets wounded in battle and yells, medic, we go. 
The other soldiers increase firepower while a medic drags the wounded person out of the line of fire. My job was to keep that guy alive until we could get him onto a helicopter. The casualty rate was very high. We went through 27 medics in the first nine months I was in Vietnam. I wouldn't say that we were fearless, but we hid our fear. A firefight could last for a couple of days or like the Hep Suk battle for 13 straight days. I was wounded by shrapnel, but I had to keep going. There were lives to save. I earned a purple heart and got out of the military in 1970. Three years later, I went to Harvard and earned a graduate degree in education. I had a successful career, but I also ended up with cancer. I tell my wife that Charlie, the Viet Cong, didn't kill me, but Agent Orange is killing me a little bit every day. Two of my sons, Colin and Brendan, have continued the tradition of service. Both were deployed to Iraq. I am so proud of them, just as I am of all who have fought for this country. Francis Whitebird, this is honor. Traditionally, honor means having a reputation worthy of admiration and respect. Originally, it might have been based on one's physical prowess. Ancient Greek philosophy wed bravery with character traits such as integrity, self-control, orderliness, industry, and dependability. In medieval times, chivalry was added in. And then, beginning in the 20th century, something happened. Honor seemed to unravel as the anonymity of urbanization dissolved that intimate face-to-face -face relationship that honor requires. Shame went out of vogue, which sometimes inspires honor when all else fails. And the worst of it, of course, are the ways in which an individual's needs and desires were elevated above the common good at the same time, a shared agreement about what constitutes the common good was lost. Honor, once very public, became private at best. Here's a second story. Rhonda Cornham, 68 years old, is a surgeon living in Kentucky. She says, in 1978, I was coming out of graduate school with a PhD in biochemistry. An army recruiter contacted me and said, we need someone to do the research that you do. The only catch is that you have to join the army. I saw the lab in San Francisco where I'd be working and it was beautiful. So I joined. But after four years, I realized I was making half as much as the physician, so I went to the Army Medical School and became a flight surgeon. On August 2nd, 1990, I watched TV as Iraqi tanks rolled into Kuwait. The commander of a helicopter battalion asked me to go with his unit to Iraq. I remember thinking I could die. My grandfather was a World War II vet. He once told me, Rhonda, there are worse things than dying. There is living with dishonor. 
If I didn't go, I would have to live with that dishonor for the rest of my life. I thought, you're really going to war, Rhonda. On February 27, 1991, I was aboard a Black Hawk helicopter on a search and rescue mission over southern Iraq. An F-16 pilot had ejected from his plane. He was alive and talking on his radio. We went to get him but didn't have intel. All we had were coordinates. In fact, we were headed into the biggest ammunition supply point in southern Iraq. We were shot down. Five guys from my aircraft died. I was lucky. But I was wounded. I had two broken arms, a broken finger, and a gunshot wound in my back. After regaining consciousness, my first thought was, nobody's ever died from pain. I ended up a prisoner of war. After eight days, I was repatriated. And after a few surgeries to heal me up, the fact that I was a woman, the fact that I had served on the front lines and that I had become a prisoner of war gave me a lot of credibility to speak up. Dr. Radha Kornman did speak up and went on to be the Army's Assistant Surgeon General for Force Protection. Reviving honor begins at the highest point of spiritual awakening. When we realize that the world does not revolve around us, that there is a higher moral imperative than personal pleasure and gain, that every choice we make affects those around us, in a way affects everyone. We stop doing things out of fear of retribution, stop doing the bare minimum, and are motivated not by duty for duty's sake, but by a higher imperative. That seventh principle of Unitarian Universalism, respect for the interdependent web of all existence. In his book, The Way of Men, speaker and author Jack Donovan writes, part of the reason that honor is a virtue rather than merely a state of affairs is that respect for your peers is a show of loyalty and an indication of belonging. Honor moves us from acting out of fear of authority to acting from love, the highest calling. My third story is from 93-year-old George B. Price. He says, I have to give credit to my hometown of Laurel, Mississippi. We were raised to believe that service to one's country was an honorable and dignified profession. We had African-American veterans of World War I living there, so we had role models. It was a community spirit. Everybody felt a part of it, including my sister, Leontine Price, who went on to become the famous opera singer. I first left home for university on a football scholarship, but I was fully determined to become a military officer. In the summer after my junior year, this was during the period when President Truman signed the desegregation order for the armed forces, we were training in Georgia where there were strict segregation laws. It was difficult, 
but we focused. We worked through it. When I graduated, the Army was not only desegregating, but deploying to a war zone, the Korean Peninsula. From the day I put on the uniform, I felt it was my job to perform above and beyond the call of duty. So that's what I did. I was in combat nearly every day I was in Korea. I was wounded and spent six months in the hospital in Virginia. I went to airborne school. I went to Army Ranger School. I embedded with the South Vietnamese Army during the Vietnam War and served as an advisor to them. My obligation was to be the best officer I could in service to my country and to the soldiers whom I led. That's what had been instilled in me as a kid by my community and my mentors. In 1976, I became chief of staff of the United States Army. Honor is self-reinforcing. Each honorable act builds on a conviction of self-worth. It checks narcissism, binding those who behave honorably in mutual respect for what's best, not only for individuals, but for the greater good. All honorable behavior comes down to just that, taking into account the larger community and choosing not to engage in behavior that will in any way weaken it. In contemporary society, as the bonds of honor have dissolved, we've come to rely on obedience to ever more elaborate rules and regulations to govern behavior, doing the right thing, whether or not someone is watching, has been replaced by surveillance cameras to reinforce ethical behavior. But honor can be revived. Whether or not honor can be revived on a society-wide culture, we can revive it in our own lives and in the life of our community, and so build beloved community. Today's fourth and final veteran story is told by 58-year-old Kwong Pham, founder and CEO of a biopharmaceutical company and author of A Sense of Duty. In March of 1965, the United States ordered combat troops into the war. My father was a lieutenant colonel in the South Vietnamese Air Force. I had been born about six months earlier. Ten years later, when Saigon fell and the North Vietnamese overran the whole area, I had just finished fifth grade. At two o'clock in the morning of April 22nd, 1975, evacuations began. We were on the second flight, my mother, my three sisters, and I. I remember big, tall Americans helping us onto the C-130 and I can still hear the sound of the thundering engines. My father remained behind and became a military prisoner. We lost touch with him. He was my hero, and I had dreams of becoming a military pilot like him. My family ended up in California. I went to UCLA to study economics. 
One day, a Marine recruiter was on campus and invited me to go to officer candidate school. I showed up in Virginia in 1986. The biggest shock was how much the Vietnam War was still on the minds of the US military. There were a lot of racist slurs, but there was no way I wasn't going to make it through. When I got to my squadron in 1990, the Gulf War began. I volunteered to go. In Saudi Arabia, I was a new co-pilot aboard a CH-46 Sea Knight helicopter, the second youngest pilot in my squadron. On February 27, 1991, we flew the first medical evacuation out of Kuwait, 50 feet off the desert floor, the fields below us in flames. In May of 1992, as I was getting ready for my second deployment, my father arrived in America. It had been 17 years since I'd last seen him wearing a flight suit. He was finally free, and I was wearing a flight suit. We were united, and my life had come full circle. Three days later, I deployed to the Persian Gulf and then to Mogadishu, Somalia. People couldn't understand my drive to serve. It was my way to pay it back to this country and my honor. Beloved spiritual companions, on this Veterans Day Sunday, let us cherish the memory of those who have gone before us with honor. May we hear the challenge to revive honor and so enchant civil society with a passion for the common good. May we answer the spiritual call to live deeply into our interconnectedness. And may all that we do be done in love, our highest calling. So may we build the beloved community. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hand over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. From Tolstoy's War and Peace, I say let us join with those who love goodness and let there be only one banner, real goodness. I want to say that it is always the simplest ideas that lead to the greatest consequences. My idea in its entirety is that if vile people unite and constitute a force, then decent people are obliged to do likewise, just that. Long live the whole world. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen.
please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.